Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. So the rivalry between Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer started in 2005 at Grand Slam level. That's where we're going back to for the next edition of Roland Garros Relived. Catherine, where were you in the world in 2005? I had just finished my second year of university. Presumably that would have been sort of during my exams of second year of uni. So on the cusp of my year abroad it wasn't it wasn't a hugely memorable year i have to say i don't remember watching that match live so so let's go with i was you know busy being very very studious uh and revising for my yeah, exams right. although i've got no recollection of that particularly either but i don't i'm i'm not sure that i watched that live at the time second year of uni that's when that's when exams start to count though isn't it so is it Mm. First yeah. year, first year, they just they just don't matter. My only right. memory of that time, and this is I'm about to say this on a podcast. I I, I don't know if my parents know this, but I oh excellent. I I slept through my alarm for one of my exams in second no. year, and I I got that I managed to get there eight minutes late and to walk in late. Uh, Walk it, of shame in my pajamas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just clutching my enormous French dictionary under my arm. Thank goodness I had the presence of mind to grab that off my desk. Um, yeah, a truly horrifying life moment to look at your <laughs> uh, clock and realise the exam has started. Not my finest hour. So possibly that. I mean, that would have been almost exactly the time that Federer and Nadal were were uh, playing that French Open semi-final. So maybe that was my excuse that I was yeah, right. busy doing that. Well, not to worry. She's going to relive. She's relived it here <laughs> with us just now and got to see it. And uh, Matt, where were you in 2005? Uh, coming to the end of primary school. <laughs> <laughs> That will never not be funny. <laughs> With a couple more years to go. I actually got, this was to the start of my tennis watching days, really. I got given the sort of joke award at the end of primary school, which was the Rafael Nadal Award for services to tennis. Why, did, why didn't my school have a Rafael Nadal Award? <laughs> Rafael Nadal didn't exist when I was at school. Yeah, he didn't for you either, Catherine. Okay, but I could have wise. got the Pete Sampras Award. I could have got the yeah. Martina Navratilova Award, the Steffi Graf Award. I'd have accepted any of those. Yeah, I mean they had those, but they were for people that didn't didn't sleep through their alarms. Apparently, <laughs> so, I've, uh, I'm, I've 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 I'm feeling a bit weird remembering that. Actually, I've got a slightly unsettled feeling in my stomach. Quick, change the subject. <laughs> right, what else happened in 2005? Let's get on to Catherine's favourite bit of the show. Sadly, it's not very happy. It's all bad news. Um, Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans. Pope John Paul II died and the London bombings took place. And finally, YouTube was founded. Yes, with, uh, what was that video? Me at the zoo. 
That was the first YouTube video. Was some, it? Yeah, it was just some guy, I think presumably one of the co-founders of YouTube, just standing at the zoo in front of an elephant, talking about their elephant trunks. It's only about 20 <laughs> seconds long. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's the first YouTube video. God, this, this podcast's already worthwhile just for the elephant trunk news and Catherine's <laughs> alarm sleeping. Um, in the tennis world, Roger Federer was the world number one in the men's game. The year before, he'd won three of the four Grand Slam tournaments and was trying to complete the career Grand Slam to join Andre Agassi as the only player to have won all of the slams when they were played on four different surfaces. Rafael Nadal was celebrating his 19th birthday. It was his first ever French Open, and yet he was the favourite to win it after taking both the Monte Carlo and Rome titles in the lead-up. He would go on to win 12 of them, uh, which still will never not make me laugh. Um, but this was their first ever meeting at a Grand Slam tournament. And we've actually just found, Catherine, a photo shoot that they did the day before this match took place, which I remember seeing the image of. I wasn't in Paris. I've never covered the, the French Open. But I, I got to see – I remember seeing this photo at the time – and had covered Nadal in Rome. I, I was there when he beat Guillermo Correa in that absolute epic. Um, I'd attended the first ever press conference I'd been to with Nadal was straight after that, the one where Nadal just ate two complete plates of pasta all the way through the press conference um, and really struggled to speak English, but was still absolutely adorable of the process. Um, but he had not been somebody that I'd seen play Nadal I don't think I'd seen the Miami match that they had earlier that year which Federer won in five sets despite being two sets to love down they'd played the year before in Miami as well um, which uh, Nadal had won but this really had even before it took place it had a huge match feel to it because Federer was utterly dominant in tennis okay he'd lost to Marit Safin at the Australian Open but that that was Safin playing at the absolute peak of his powers and, and it was decided by a point or two. Other than that, Federer was totally dominant. I mean, he only lost four matches all year, so Safin was one of them. And here he is playing this young kid who's suddenly looking like he's about to dominate on clay. But could he do it at the French Open? That was what was so fascinating about it, wasn't it? It was it was perfectly set up and yet, and we just didn't have the data, we didn't have the history to know how this one would go, really, Catherine. There was no, there was nothing really to go on. And yet, just as with that that 2006 Rome final that we relived a few weeks ago, everybody seemed to know that this was one of the great rivalries in the making, in the build-up to the match that, that we just watched of the ESPN coverage hosted by Chris Fowler, Brad Gilbert's the main uh, pundit in the studio alongside him. He says, this feels like Agassi Sampras or Borg McEnroe, which potentially might have drawn a bit of laughter at the time. This was their first ever Grand Slam meeting. This is the world number one against a guy playing his first ever French Open. And yet that is a comment that is aged incredibly well. Mm. People did people did know it felt different. It felt important. I certainly feel like insiders like those you've just mentioned, you, those that covered the sport. And I think obviously tennis fans who, who follow the sport regularly would have seen Nadal's win in Monte Carlo and Rome and known about that. I think for those that just watched the Grand Slams, this was their introduction to Nadal in many ways. He had had one great match with Leighton Hewitt at the start of the year in uh, at the Australian Open that, that uh, he'd narrowly lost. But a lot of people just watched the Slams and this would have been their first real uh, experience of Rafael Nadal. Interesting to get a view from Chris, Chris Clary from the New York Times, who's covered the sport for nearly three decades now. And I asked him about his first memories of covering the Spaniard. Well, <laughs> I have an embarrassing story to tell, actually. Um, I didn't come across him this way, but the first time I ever wrote about him, I remember this was pre, you know, like pre-internet days and everything else. And it was Rafael Nadal Pereira, because the Spanish players were all going with, uh, you know, both surnames in those days. A lot of times that was that was the convention after Emilio Sanchez Vicario and all that gang and, and Arancha Sanchez Vicario and others. So we were, I think at the first time I ever mentioned him in print, I called him a great promising right-hander. 
and uh, nobody caught it because <laughs> nobody knew who he was. <laughs> <laughs> I think he won a couple matches down in Spain at an ATP event. That's when, when he was, what, probably 15? Is that what that mm, sound right? Yeah, that's 15, right. 15, 15 years old. So we had him as a right-hander initially. I've never fessed up to Rafa on that one. But he, he is kind of ambidextrous in some ways, right? So there's a little bit of possible truth to that, but not not in, not in the way he played tennis. So that was my introduction to to Rafael Nadal Pereira. And finally figured out he was a left-hander. And the funny thing about that, thing was he comes to the French Open for the first time and it's anything but a surprise that he wins, right? That's the thing that's crazy. I mean that's uh that was the unusual part about it was that he was a he was a called shot. Everybody'd been waiting for him for two years already to play and he finally gets gets there when the body cooperates and and then he does what he's supposed to do and you know you knew you knew then. I think I think you might have even have known, you know, second week of the tournament he was going to win multiple French Opens, but twelve? No, never. But that he would be a multiple French Open champion when you watched the guy on clay and and saw the reactions of the experts, you knew that uh, that was certainly in the realm of the possible. Yeah, pretty much saying what you what you were saying there, Catherine. That that feeling was there, and and I certainly remember watching him out last Guillermo Correa, and Correa never being the same afterwards after that Rome final that they played, and and it. His his will, his force of he was a force of nature. Not it wasn't just a physical talent. It, his appetite for the battle is still something like I've never seen before in anybody, and, and you could see even then as a teenager. Yeah, the uh, again the the punditry after the match. So you've just seen seen this this nineteen year old kid take apart the overwhelmingly dominant world number one in in four sets uh and brad gilbert says i'm i'm prepared to go big on this kid he's going to win seven to ten slams for sure and he says uh <laughs> he says um i think he's going to be the first player since borg to win here and wimbledon and chris fowler goes wow wow you're really being bold there brad um yeah it's it, it's it's, I mean, I'm sure there are predictions like that that could be dug out that have turned out to be comical. <laughs> um, you know, like predicting Kei Nishikori would go on to to dominate the world of tennis. You're going to stand for that, Matt? <laughs> Win a slam is not dominating the world of tennis. Um, Plenty of but- material there, Susan, Matt, if you want. <laughs> but I think that's right, though, isn't it? That all throughout this match, I just got the feeling that no one could possibly know what was coming. You know, you couldn't. You could see Nadal was good, but you just didn't know how good. And I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that everyone at this stage was completely in awe of Federer as well. I mean, the ATP had produced an in-house documentary at the end of the last season called Facing Federer, which is on YouTube. And I've watched it, and it's basically just all his rivals, like the people at the ATP finals, I think, Hemman, Gaudio, Safin, Hewitt, just talking about how good Federer is and how like they've never seen anything like it. And everyone's in complete awe of the man. I think, you know, John McEnroe and, um, sorry, Patrick McEnroe said, um, that John wishes that he could have played like Federer. And um, I, I think John actually says that they have a slight, um, interview with John that looked like it was conducted in sort of Hugh Hefner's parlor <laughs> where he's sort of semi reclining on a chaise long. Um, How do you know what his father looks like? <laughs> um, and yeah, it's like this. Like I was saying yesterday, with, with the way John McEnroe used to talk about Justine Enan's backhand, you've got John McEnroe possibly, certainly in the conversation for the most talented male tennis player of all time. You know, in in Mary's words, John would have been good at lunar tennis. You know, he was just that good at tennis. He's saying, "I wish I could have played l- like Federer." You're John McEnroe, mate. You're like it. It was. It was like he had the tennis world under some kind of hypnosis for mm. for a period. What did there. he won? Four slams by this point. Yeah, I mean, obviously Which, he'd won three the year before in, a, yeah. in in style, but it's as though they can't. No one can possibly think that someone as good as Federer is going to come along so quickly. So therefore, everyone. As much as Nadal was the favourite for this tournament, when it got to the match of him playing Federer, 
almost everyone seems to be picking Federer. They're all underestimating Nadal because they think, well, he's up against Federer. Federer is the best thing I've ever seen. So, of course, he's going to win. Uh, Meanwhile, you've also got Roger Federer. Thinking thinking he's the best thing anyone's ever seen. (laughs) He's not exactly dialing it down because in the same video montage as we hear John McEnroe saying he wishes he could be Roger Federer, you've got Federer saying... I feel like I've started to go into overdrive and I've really started to play better than all the other guys. I feel almost unbeatable at times. Um, he, um, he, he said... Uh, he said he's, he's, 2004 was one of the best years we've had in tennis and I'm the one who did it. So of course, it's very special. I love that line. And of course, yeah, that was me. <laughs> and that was contrasted with Nadal's humility. Like Nadal was probably saying at the time, oh, I've never played the French Open before. I'm, I'm probably not one of the favourites. I bet he was I bet he was sort of hushing the noise around him. Um, and he did it for years, Matt, Absolutely, Because yeah. all the way through, even when he was beating Federer, he would always say, yeah, but he's the best of all time and I'm, I'm just number two. Mm. He would basically say that and then go and beat him again. Usually it was on clay, but it was, it was quite stark the way he was almost in awe of Federer's talent. There's a there's a lovely... I mean, I can't quite believe this happened because it was only 15 years ago and yet it feels ludicrous to imagine this happening now. But the two players did a photo shoot together the day before that semi-final. Not, not you know, pr- not normal pre-final press. There's this series of, of photos of the two of them arm in arm looking like Big kids, don't they? They look like kids in a sweet shop with their rackets slung over their shoulders. They are, yeah, literally they've got their arms around one another. Um, And, I mean, Federer looks, you know, pretty high on life. But Nadal just looks like a big kid that's happy to be there, that is just so excited about getting to play this match Mm. in 24 hours' time. And yet then you get him on the court... Mm. And he's ravenous and not going to let Federer take it. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. 
You heard it right. Let's start with the very first point of the match <laughs> to to prove that point. Because I, I think I think your expression of hypnosis, Catherine, is right. Because I think I was under that too. I was under the same spell. My view was always, and this would last for a, a two or three more years yet, that if, if Federer played properly, he would go and win, no matter what it was on. And, and I was wrong. I, I, that Nadal was underestimated. And you see it in the very first point of the match, a point that I, I mean, I've not, not seen this match before. So it, it really strikes you. you. You've got Federer hitting an out wide serve, taking Nadal out of court to line up his, so he can line up his big forehand inside out, belt it, and come in towards the net, which he does. And he hits a solid forehand as Federer. Nadal just sprints to his left and smacks the forehand winner down the line straight past him. And the gasps in the crowd and the, and the, and the reaction of the commentators of, whoa, uh, <laughs> what have we just seen? Uh, they didn't say, whoa, what have we just seen, David? They said, holy mackerel. <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> so, and and that really, to me, that was a a moment like I was I was trying to think what does it remind me of, and I was thinking back to when England went to Australia in the Ashes, having won the I think it was the two thousand five Ashes, 05, and they went yeah. they went to the to the Australian return and first ball, Steve Harmison bowled wide. The, the <laughs> widest wide ever that made you just think that that feels a bit ominous. Um, and then a few weeks ago, Tyson Fury fought Deontay Wilder, the biggest puncher in the sport. And, and the first second the bell goes, he steps right up to him and, and takes the fight to him. And it, and it, and those sort of moments just make you think something's going to happen. Do we need to explain what the ashes are to any American listeners? Cricket, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Cricket. Mm. So, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a warning shot, isn't it? Straight away, a warning shot that Nadal's not going to make this comfortable for Federer. And just, I mean, that first set, Federer had been broken seven times in the whole tournament, five matches leading up to playing Nadal. He gets broken four times in the set by Nadal. <laughs> so that immediately just shows you that this is a new challenge, just a completely different specimen that Nadal that Federer is having to face and contend with with Nadal and obviously that would extrapolate out over the years as the two would kind of hijack tennis for a couple of years that they were so much better than everyone else um but Federer just hadn't had a challenge like this before it it seemed very clear to me despite Federer's comments to the contrary after the match that Federer knew that his his normal shtick his normal game wasn't going to get the job done he was he was under the same influence that he usually exerted on opponents which was thinking I've got to do more I'm instantly under pressure in it in it and I've got to go a bit closer to that and I've got to put a bit more on my serve he was definitely double faulting in that match more than more than he usually would have he was he was missing a lot of forehands the commentators were bemused by the number of forehands he was missing because he just didn't really miss forehands like that at that period of his career but against Nadal he did because he felt like he had to do to do more he was he was taking more risks and he was being pulled outside of his comfort zone he was over pressing mm. playing playing quite recklessly really with the forehand and he thought he needed to do it and he but he actually I don't think he did because in the second set when he's a lot more stable and grounded and consistent he doesn't pull the trigger so early in rallies he actually has quite a lot of success and starts to try and play him at his own game a bit more doesn't he exactly he uses his own movement to try and counter Nadal's movement and he got a foothold in the match and then when he's more settled he can then start to bring out a little bit of variety get to the net a little bit more and feel a bit more comfortable with his own game um and the confidence starts to flow but yeah just that that first set was such so stark how dramatically he came out just swinging and missing. It was noticeable how he backed his own physicality. I mean, bear in mind Federer is only twenty three years of age at this point to go toe to toe because he could he could do that with everybody else. He could outgrind players if he wanted to. It was only that Nadal was so good at that that stopped him from doing that as a as a career. 
tactic against this man. Um, but in the second set, as you say, he started zoning in on the Nadal backhand with his own highly topspin forehand cross court, trying to sort of play him at his own game and, and got some success with it. And Nadal sort of went into his shell a little bit for a while. And I think that Federer was shocked, therefore, when Nadal suddenly burst his way out of it again and started to hit out. And I, th- I think that that's where the commentators underestimate Nadal, that ability to just say no. What I think Patrick McEnroe said, if Federer plays like this, this being the way he was playing in the second set, I think he said, I'm not sure what Nadal can do. He doesn't have the firepower to live with Federer's game when it's ticking and clicking like that. Um, and that was kind of that was kind of shot up with a graphic at the start of the match, which... <laughs> which was comical, really, in terms of the breakdown of their games. They would sort of say serve and they'd give Federer a tick and Nadal would just have nothing. And beforehand, Federer would have two ticks. It was a three-tier system, so you could go from zero to two ticks. Yeah, Nadal had none for his serve. Federer (laughs) just had the one. uh, Nadal had none for his volley. Yeah, Uh, they both had two on the forehand. They both had one on the backhand. Nadal had two for foot speed. Federer had one, and then <laughs> and then and then, it, and, then it, 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 and then at the bottom it sort of said soggy Federer. Yeah, it said uh, warm and dry Nadal, soggy and wet Federer. In terms of who the conditions <laughs> so would favour, they've lost track of the the units of measurement uh, on the, <laughs> great, on the graph great, at this point. But, it, but Intang- intangibles is a great category there. <laughs> yeah. and two ticks for Federer. <laughs> two ticks for Federer. One for Nadal. But it's actually. As much as we can mock that, it does tell you that Federer had more sort of component parts in his game to a higher level. And if you just... Well, he, he was ready. He Nadal would, was a exactly. work in progress. And I think what people didn't take into account is that Federer hadn't figured out how to arrange all these component parts into a game plan to beat Nadal, whereas Nadal had a game plan against Federer and he just honed in on it. Because Federer, even after this defeat, thought, I I don't need a game plan, I just need to play my best tennis. Mm. His comments after the match where he said, I was bad at the start, good in the middle and bad at the end. (laughs) (laughs) He said, uh, and this is a question I I put to, a quote I put to Mary Carrillo, and we'll, we'll hear her answer to it to it later but he said uh i feel like i had the i i i feel i thought i had the keys to beat him but i wasn't at my best and that is such a i mean either maybe he's misleading slightly there because he doesn't want to to give away how much nadal had, had got in his head with that win but he didn't have the keys and he's never had the keys on clay that's those that's the the bare fact of it and I, th- I think he was taken in by how it had always worked to be- against everybody else eventually even if he'd had a losing record against henman or hewitt or nalbandian he'd turn them around he, he he would find ways within his game to to diffuse them and look in the end 15 years later or all the best part of he did the same with nadal but back then not a chance um there was a moment in at the start of the third set when they're one set all where federer hits the most extravagant backhand pass and is is basically laughing at how incredible it was and the crowd's reaction it actually only got him to 30 15 and nadal just <laughs> knuckles down, sends a serve out wide onto his backhand and wins the point to go 40-15. Forget <laughs> about that backhand pass. But I feel like that, that slightly encapsulates what was going on, that Federer would draw the, the, the shock and awe in the crowd and the, 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 the adulation, but it was Nadal who was getting the job done. And he, didn't, he just never let himself get drawn into that, uh, that Federer web of seduction. Yeah, he never panicked. And the way so early on in his career, he understood the rhythms of a five-set match to know that Federer is going to have periods where he's looking imperious and you've just, got to, you've just got to ride them out a little bit. Don't panic. And, you know, you see that throughout the third set where Nadal goes up a break, Federer gets it back. You think maybe Federer's got the momentum. Nadal just puts it behind, carries on. And then the, and then the fourth set, Federer takes the lead, Nadal comes back and then really just lets Federer self-destruct a little bit at the end. He starts getting mm. rattled by uh, 
a fan who calls out between his first and his second serve, hits a double fault and really just, yeah, self-immolates a bit there, Federer at the end. And the dog just kind of lets him just lets him do it because he, he knows when to press and when to just back off. It's an incredible skill considering, especially considering he won't have played that many best of five set matches this early on in his career. It struck me how he was taking all of his breakpoint opportunities. I think I, I don't recall him missing one. He would get 30-40 and boom, he would break. It would just be be done. In the blink of an incredible eye, incredible big point player. In- incredible. In contrast, like I mean, maybe it's not fair contrast because I feel like Nadal would match up favourably against pretty much anybody. But it was in contrast to Federer, who who was miss hitting, not connecting well with the ball a lot of the time on on the bigger points, and that was absolutely what we found with the uh, the 2006 Rome final as well yeah. and you know I, I don't want to come back to the you know Federer has got no nerve uh, John Wertheim line but <laughs> this was Federer's third defeat of 2005 he'd only suffered two out of the 48 matches he'd played before this one and they were both from match point up mm. it was Gasquet and Monte Carlo and, and Safin at the Australian Open. I should say, I, 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 we, when we poke fun maybe at the odd commentator comment, in 15-year hindsight, I was just as culpable as anybody. I always believed that Federer's best tennis would beat anybody and didn't give Nadal enough credit, quite honestly, and I, I realise that now. Um, let's get a view on it from Mary Carrillo, who would have covered all of this and... She got used to it feeling a little bit like Groundhog Day. I did a bunch of those finals when, not just semifinals, but the finals that they played against each other where, boy, it felt very foregone conclusion-y, you know, right from the start because you knew that, you knew just where he was aiming his shots, going up, you know, making Federer hit, you know, backhands, you know, from his ears, you know, and and it was just such a... uh, it, it, you just kind of knew what was going to happen with them. That, that, that Federer finally won it because somebody else beat Nadal that year, 2009, certainly took him out. He needed someone to clear his path, I think. Look, they, they love that matchup, both of them. But on clay, I never, I never once remember thinking, all right, this is, this is Roger's chance to beat Nadal. I, it, that surface just absolutely favored Nadal. And, Mentally, physically, and emotionally, <laughs> Nadal never was confused about how to play against against Roger. No matter, you know what I mean. It will. I, I mean, a quote from Federer after this this o o five match at the French. He said, "I had the keys to beat him, but I wasn't at my best." So he obviously thought, "I'm the better player when I play my best. I've I've got the tools here." But that is not a comment that's that's aged well, is it? No, because again, look, what, when Roger came back after being injured in 2016 and came back with a far better backhand than he'd ever owned before and took out Nadal in the Australian Open final, I mean, that's because he actually changed the backhand that Rava has been attacking for 15 years. <laughs> he made it, he took it earlier. He got a bigger string bed uh, on his racket, so he was able to be more aggressive with more margin. And that took a long time for him to do. But still on clay, I remember once Roger explaining to me uh, after having lost to Rafa again, he, months later, he said, my problem is I don't, you know, Roger's got sort of classic strokes and he's got a front foot and a back foot, unlike so many people who hit open stance, forehands and backhands. And he said, I just find myself a little bit too far behind the baseline because of how I swing, like his stroke production is not the same as these guys. And so especially against Rafa, when the guy is trying to push it into the stands anyway, he felt like, God, I, there's nothing I can do about that. I need to turn and I need to, I need to be behind the baseline. I have to make my turns. I can't just stand wide open and guard my territory like that. Isn't that something? We recently rewatched the the famous uh, 2006 Rome final that uh, Federer and Nadal played against one another. Federer had two match points in that and should have won it. Absolutely should have won it. He was he was the better player that day. He wasn't the better player in the bigger moments, but overall he was the better player. 
and that was kind of a, it prompted as 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 is often the case a kind of sliding doors discussion about that you know how how differently could their rivalry have been had he had he won that match did he let the scar tissue the mental baggage particularly on that surface build up too early in their rivalry again you know it's all about matchups isn't it i mean that's what i love about tennis is that you know somebody could be really good but if their opponent doesn't let them play their game <laughs> it's i mean that's the beauty of of the matchup that's the and how do you solve that how do you i mean this is why chrissy and martina played each other 80 times and made each other better over the years because they had to keep solving each other. You know, Martina had to get fitter just to live with Chrissy on the baseline. And then Chrissy had to get physically stronger just to combat the physicality of Martina's game. I mean, but the fact is the matchup that, you know, the high kicking lefty shots swings of Rafa on his serve off his off his forehand. I mean, that was going to work on, on, it was a bad matchup for Roger. And that's why their, their, their great matches were so compelling because you knew exactly what they were both trying to do. (laughs) And then the whole thing is, all right, who's gonna, who's gonna execute? Who's gonna, and on clay, I think Roger broke quicker, uh, than on any other surface because he knew that the clay was just compounding his problems. Well, yeah, she's absolutely right. It it was harder on clay and he never really got to grips with it against Nadal, did he? Because he had that win. I remember being courtside. I told you about the one in Hamburg where Federer did beat Nadal and and Federer was brilliant in Hamburg, wasn't he? He just won that tournament in 05 ahead of this meeting, which I think probably also made people think, oh, you know, maybe he's going to find a way here. He didn't play Rome and so they'd not met each other in the run-up to this one on clay. But in the end, it was a pretty handy victory. Four sets for Nadal. Um, it was close. There were ups and downs. But Nadal was was quite comfortably the better player. And he then went on to beat Mariana Puerta in the final that didn't really feel like the final because this one felt like the final. Well, the way Nadal reacted when he beat Federer is how he's reacted when he's won so many of his Roland Garros titles, letting sort of flinging his racket away and falling on, on his back and covering himself in clay. And um, John Wertheim actually wrote after that match that uh, they've tried something different at the French Open this year and crowned the men's champion on Friday. Oof, um, wow. <laughs> just because beating Federer was the ultimate. And, you know, Puerta, who obviously ended up actually having a, a quite a lengthy drugs ban actually after this, wasn't it? He was found to have been um, doping during this tournament, in fact, and didn't really do anything else the rest of his career. But yeah, just everyone kind of knew that once Nadal had overcome Federer, he was going to win this title. Um, I do think on Nadal and Federer's rivalry that Federer has talked about the fact that he th- thinks he played Nadal too often on clay early in, early in their career. And that maybe built up baggage, but more than anything, he just built up, he didn't, he sort of let the way he played Nadal on clay affect him on other surfaces against him. And I think, especially on hard courts, um, it's actually to Federer's, it's one of Federer's greatest achievements, I think, that he's turned the head-to-head round against Nadal because it looked like there were no answers there for so long. And the fact that he has flipped it on its head in the last four or five years is, is really astounding, I think. He solved his biggest problem or what he thought was his biggest problem and then Novak Djokovic has come along and given him another one. Via a combination of remodelling his backhand and not playing on clay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think even he did used to lose to Nadal a lot on hard courts Oh, yes, as well. absolutely. But, I th- but, yeah, I th- but he, I mean, it's a strategic mental masterstroke that he he. Gained the he he remodelled his his game for Nadal, gained the upper hand, and then preserved it by not playing on clay, not risking yeah. damaging the the fragile edge that he had built up by facing him on a surface where it would almost certainly fall apart. Which which as as it did when they when they played at Roland Garros last year during the the sandstorm. But but now he's got the formula that mm. the Roland Garros loss last year didn't 
didn't really matter because they then went and played at Wimbledon and still mm. he was able to play in his new way. So he's, yeah, I mean, he's cracked it. He's not going to beat him on clay, I don't think, ever again. But he's got the formula now on the rest of the surfaces. Yeah, last year was the one where they played in a tornado, yeah. more or less, didn't they? And, and I mean, neither one of them could properly play the sport. But it is it is interesting to look at what happened next because Nadal would win their next four matches spreading over more than a year. Taking in that that Rome match, there was one in Monte Carlo, there was one in Dubai, and then they played each other again a year later at Roland Garros. And this is what I always remember from it because what I was always waiting for and where I got it wrong is my assumption was that Federer would eventually just work it out, that it was going to be up to him, that he's that good, he's that clever, that he's so so able to figure out the the areas to attack and that he would get there. And he won the first set in their 2006 Paris final, 6-1, did Federer. And then he lost in four sets. So he had his chances, or he had moments in matches, but at the French Open, they were always four sets. Um, That's the best I think he ever did, wasn't it? He he played him in 2007, that was four sets. Uh, He played him in 2008, and that was an absolute hammering. Um, and then again in 2011, that was a closer four-set match, the one after that um, Federer had beaten uh, Novak Djokovic, of course, in the semis on that occasion. But yeah, it was a conundrum that he was never truly able to solve, and that's down to Nadal. Do you both agree with Mary's assessment this is potentially stepping on tomorrow's podcast's toes but anyway, I've I've gone down the road now. Well, I went down it with Mary anyway. Uh, do you agree with her statement that Federer needed Nadal to be taken out in order to win a French Open? If Nadal hadn't lost to Sodling in 09, would he have a French Open? No, I, 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 100% I completely agree. agree. Yeah, yeah completely I, I do agree. too, yeah. And I think it's it's also interesting... Again, this is probably a podcast in a couple of days' time that obviously Djokovic did beat Nadal at the French Open, but that wasn't the year Mm. he won it. So so neither of them have won the French Open beating Nadal en route to the title. Um, No one's done that. It's one one of the the one criticisms I think we had from from people was that that the the match they played, I think, in 2013, Mm. uh, Djokovic and Nadal, which was a classic, Nadal eventually just about winning it, that we haven't included here. I mean, it was so difficult to come up with the list, and um, we've come up with what we think is best. But, yeah, Nadal's sheer longevity on that surface, his, his relentlessness was just unparalleled like nothing we've ever seen it wasn't just the level he got to it's the level he he kept on getting to you're you're talking Um, in the past tense david well yeah i mean you're quite right i mean who knows where it'll end here's here's some more chris clary who can tell us where he thinks rafa on clay ranks against anything else he's seen in the sport it was it's really the perfect uh marriage of the man and the medium really in terms of the way he, he moves on the surface it's like uh I compared it long ago to Michael Phelps in water. That's people tend to do that all the time now. It's, but I think it's very true. It just, it's a, it's a natural sort of thing. It fits his personality, you know, and his uh, approach on a tennis court, the grit. But 12, 12 French Opens, I think, is got to be the gaudiest of all statistics. I think it's gaudier than twenty Grand Slam titles, if you ask me, just because of the re- repeated excellence that's required, and also just frankly, strokes of good fortune. And how often his body has broken down within the seasons that he won the French Open, that he still managed to peak and play his best there. It's an act of will almost at times, which is so it's a whole combination of things. That's it, isn't it? An act of will. It's not just how brilliant he was. It's it's how he's prepared to just keep on putting his body on the line, his 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 mental strength on the line. You know, it takes it must take such a lot to keep on doing this. Gordy is such a great adjective for for the achievements for those sort of decadent achievements at the very very height of the sport i love that and although i i think it's it's futile and redundant a lot of the time to debate achievements uh, and and which is which is greater 12 french opens or or 20 grand slams overall there's no answer to that question everyone will have a different opinion 
if you ask me which, uh, why am I volunteering predictions here? Have I not learned my extremely chastening lesson from our <laughs> from our podcast a few weeks ago? Um, if you ask me which one of those is most likely to be repeated, even if you take Nadal and, and Djokovic out of the out of the running for the twenty, because obviously they are quite close to emulating that. It, it, take that away in the future, in different generations, which of those achievements is most likely to be repeated? I would go with the 20 Grand Slams in a heartbeat. I think 12 12 titles at the same slam is one of the least likely to be repeated records in the sport, if not the least likely. Yeah. 12 12 and counting, I should say. I was thinking similarly of of how how to frame that achievement. If, I think if you're looking for a sports achievement above over and above tennis and every sport had to contribute one of their own achievements, I think my vote would be Nadal's 12 French Opens as the most incredible singular achievement. And it's, it's that's a silly thing to say, really singular, because it's over a number of years, but in a sport, because as you said, 20 slams, incredible, absolutely incredible, but... Djokovic is close, Nadal's close. We've seen women get that many. 12 at the same slam when you've only got one chance per year to win it is just mind-boggling. And I actually think he might end up with more than 12. Um, so, yeah, he might, I mean, I, I agree with Chris there, yeah. He, he might end up winning, you know, two more in a seven-month period. <laughs> <laughs> or eight eight-month period. Could win, yeah. could win two in a year, couldn't he? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Have you ever felt, and I don't know, Nadal fans will probably come at me for saying this, so maybe I shouldn't, but have you ever felt Nadal fatigue at Roland Garros? Because in in a way, I think that's almost natural. If you're not a, If you're not a fan, if you're a neutral, I think dominance sometimes can be a little bit boring feels like a h- too harsh a word but you just you come to expect it and it's not quite as exciting um I, I just think I absolutely have yeah I mean I always I always want competition and while I respect and admire his achievements and and more than that I I do enjoy them I do enjoy watching him in full flow I would I would always choose a competitive match over a demolition, no matter no matter who is involved, and I, I also think that that Paris and that tournament, as disrespectful as this might sound, they have experienced Nadal fatigue. I know there were yeah. some years there where they definitely were wanting a different champion. I remember there was one year, and I think at this stage, Nadal was maybe an eight-time champion, where he played his first match as the defending champion on long length which I remember thinking at the time was just pretty disrespectful, really. But they were just a bit like, oh, we've seen it all with Nadal. We don't really matter. It doesn't matter where he plays or what he does. He's probably going to win it anyway. So let's stick him out there. It wasn't sort of wanting to celebrate him and, and, and raise him up as high as they, as high as mm. they could. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, David? Well, what I like about, I mean, I agree about the competition. What I liked, the two stages I really enjoyed, uh, aside from just how impressive it is, take that aside. In terms of enjoyment, in terms of sort of billing something that I'm going to arrange my day in order to see, I liked when Federer was trying to figure it out, when Federer was winning on everything else and then would try and bring it to clay. And I enjoyed seeing that, that attempt even though he was coming up short and I, and I really enjoyed watching Djokovic when he was when Djokovic really came into his own from 2011 onwards and started to dominate in his own right and have his slam moments him taking it to Nadal at um at at Roland Garros I mean 2013 was 9-7 in the fifth to Nadal and I, and him winning that just felt that he, that much more special, just because he'd been challenged to such a degree. Um, so I enjoy I enjoy that sort of I enjoy a run, I enjoy a streak, but I want to see somebody seeing if they can break it, rather than just seeing the numbers pile up. And that does demonstrate how great Nadal has been at Roland Garros. Those different 
players he's had to beat. He had to beat Federer when Federer was the king. He had to beat Djokovic when Djokovic had the game to beat Nadal. And recent, more recent years, he's had to beat Team, who's kind of like the modern player that Nadal's own tennis kind of inspired in a way. And he's beaten them all. And I think, I think last year it really crystallised for me not to take it for granted because the way Nadal was struggling before Roland Garros, you, it can sometimes feel like he's like it's easy for him, but it isn't. And he really does have to dig deep to do it. And he keeps doing it time and time again. And um, there's also, I think, an argument when we're not, you know, we should be watching the French Open live at the moment. There's almost been something anchoring and comforting about, Nadal's dominance at Roland Garros every May, June you kind of just know it's Nadal's time it, it it pinpoints where you are in the calendar and not to have had that this year is actually, it feels like something's missing in a way um, yeah, I don't know I, I'm probably feeling a little bit more sentimental about it than I normally do <laughs> because it's not, it's not around at the moment but I do think we will look back and I think we will look back as, as as much as we've maybe experienced a little bit of fatigue. We'll, we'll be we'll have known that we've lived through something truly legendary, really. Yeah, I think you're right. Right, where are we going tomorrow, folks? Somewhere similar, but with a very, very, very different type of storyline. Yeah, Nadal losing. <laughs> yeah. After I've said all of that, um... first time ever at Roland Garros, two thousand nine. That's where we're going and what that would ultimately result in. And we're going to speak to the man who was responsible for it all, Mr. Robin Soderling. We're going back to 2009, folks, uh, on Roland Garros Relived from the Tennis Podcast tomorrow. Um, great trip down memory lane, that. Really enjoyed watching that. Really enjoyed the coverage and uh, and hearing the thoughts of all of you. Uh, and Mary and Chris, of course, such uh, great contributors to this uh, podcast series of ours. Uh, hope you're enjoying them. Thanks for all the messages that you're sending in. We, we read them all and we really appreciate them. So thanks for that. Um, and do let anybody know that you know, think might like this, uh, this show. Let them know about it. Um, Catherine, Matt, thanks for your company. Time to go and um, do some more lockdown stuff. There's not much to do. <laughs> but I'm going to do whatever that is. Lockdown stuff. Yeah, cooking, Na- eating. Napping. Napping. Okay, go and do all that. And we'll see you tomorrow. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.